Welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Malaberti. There's no new episode last week because I knew this would be an extra long episode. We're talking about Abbey Road today, which is, in my opinion, the best Beatles album and one of the best albums really in the history of pop music. I don't want to keep you from this episode any longer. I'm so excited about it. So subscribe to Rock Band's podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast. And don't forget to share us with every Beatles fan you know or anyone who likes rock and roll. All right, let's get to it. The Beatles Part 11. Alan Klein was one of the biggest names in the rock and roll industry. He was a tough-talking accountant from New York City who, during the British invasion, became heavily involved in the business affairs of some of the biggest names in music. Herman's Hermits, The Animals, The Dave Clark Five, Donovan, and most famously, he became the business manager for the Rolling Stones. Klein was an imposing figure. He was big, loud, and brash. He was this New Yorker who had a reputation for being ruthless and willing to do anything for his clients, slashing expenses, getting them a bigger cut of their money. However, Alan Klein was a snake. He was actually out for money and power, and when he got control of a band's finances, he slowly took more and more money and authority until he virtually owned his artists. This happened pretty famously to the Rolling Stones, who started working with Klein in the mid-1960s, and by 1967, Klein had pushed out the Stones' manager, Andrew Lug Aldum, and acquired the entire Stones' publishing catalog. But the pop acts of the 60s and the Stones weren't enough for Klein. He had his sights set on the biggest game in town, the Beatles. In August of 1967, Alan Klein was driving his car when he heard the news on the radio. The Beatles' longtime manager, Brian Epstein, had died. Finally, Klein saw an opportunity to strike. Klein remembers this moment, saying, quote, I was driving a bridge out of New York, and I heard on the radio that Epstein had died. And I said to myself, I got him, unquote. Alan Klein tried unsuccessfully for a year to get close to the Beatles, but they were still closely linked to the Epsteins and were choosing to operate without a manager for the time being. When Klein heard the news about the Beatles' financial problems with Apple Corps and John Lennon's admission of these problems in 1969, Alan Klein finally saw his way in. So he contacted John Lennon and arranged to meet with the Beatle and Yoko Ono at a hotel in London in January of 1969 just days before the Beatles were going to play on the roof. Alan Klein turned on the charm, and he totally wooed John and Yoko. He was confident and charismatic. He told them a bunch of show business secrets and gossip that he was aware of about the animals and the Rolling Stones, uh, who were becoming more and more of a rival to the Beatles. And John poured out all of his problems with Apple, uh, how Apple was hemorrhaging money, how they had zero organization, and Klein told John and Yoko everything they wanted to hear. I mean, Alan Klein was a gangster, and he could sort it all out easily. Just give him the keys, and everything would be okay. After a few hours of meeting, John was totally and completely sold on Alan Klein. 
He didn't know about the other Beatles, but he agreed to have Alan represent his interests. And just like that, Klein had one foot in the door. A quarter of the Beatles were under his control. The same day, John went back to the Apple headquarters at Three Savile Row, and he was euphoric. He had finally found the answer to all these business problems. Just hire this tough-as-nails accountant from New York, and he'll handle it all. At John's urging, Alan Klein actually came to Savile Row to meet the rest of the Beatles that evening, and he turned on the charm once again. He had a solution for everything, an answer for everything, and the meeting lasted well into the night. McCartney was unimpressed, and he left the meeting early, but Harrison and Starr really took a liking to Alan Klein. And they still kind of trusted John as the leader of the group, so if it worked for him, it really worked for them. Plus, George was really way more interested in producing for Apple artists, and he didn't like having to do the businessman thing. Ringo was also bored and unhappy having to deal with the business side of Apple, so the idea of just hiring someone to oversee it for them was really pretty appealing. Both George Harrison and Ringo Starr agreed to have Alan Klein represent their interests. Ringo Starr later remembered the meeting with Alan Klein, saying, quote, We met with Alan Klein, and we were convinced by him. Well, I was convinced by him, and John too. My impression of him when I first met was brash. I'll get it done, lads. Lots of enthusiasm. A good guy with pleasant attitude about himself in a really gross New York way, unquote. Just like that, Klein was representing three quarters of the Beatles. The fourth and final Beatle, though, would prove impossible for Alan Klein to convince. Paul was well aware of all of the business concerns at Apple, and he too wanted to find a solution. He also knew that they needed a competent business manager, but he had a different idea of who it should be. His soon-to-be wife, Linda Eastman, came from a rich family of lawyers in New York. Lee Eastman, her father, and John Eastman, her brother, both seemed like very competent individuals to Paul, and he felt that Apple would be best if it were managed by the Eastmans. Now, the other three Beatles didn't have a problem with the Eastmans per se, but they really didn't like the idea of being managed by Paul and his in-laws. The band already felt that Paul was exercising too much control since Brian Epstein died, and this felt like a step way too far. In addition to the propaganda about the Eastmans that they were being fed by Alan Klein, John, Ringo, and George became united in their support for Klein in opposition to the Eastmans. Paul refused to sign anything that officially recognized Alan Klein as his business manager, and he was the only Beatle never to do so, despite sustained effort from Paul and the other three Beatles. Now, Paul campaigned hard against Klein in the crucial weeks after the January meeting. He even brought Mick Jagger to Savile Row to try to convince the other guys not to go through with it and tell them how the Stones are still fighting for control of their music. Unfortunately, this warning never occurred. The day that Mick Jagger stopped by the office, Alan Klein was actually present, so Mick Jagger was very much tame in his criticism of Klein, just saying something like, well, he's fine if that's what you're into. Mick Jagger also might have been pleased to see the Beatles falling into the Alan Klein trap. He always took the Beatles versus Stones rivalry a bit more seriously than the Beatles did. In a compromise, Alan Klein came on board to handle the business dealings, and the Eastmans would be in charge of the legal matters, though this was arguably the most fundamental disagreement the band ever had. There were many business meetings with uh, Alan Klein on one side and the Eastmans on the other, hurling insults at each other, screaming, acting as proxies for the two Beatles camps. Uh, Alan Klein would eventually prevail, and when he got an office at Savile Row in the March of 1969, he took 
control of Apple Corps and began a reign of terror. He fired tons of people, including Magic Alex, who was alienated after his failed recording studio incident. He terminated some of Apple's more hippie pursuits like Apple Electronics, Zapple, Apple Films, and others. You know, gone were the days of the parties, the champagne, the drugs, the concerning presence of Hell's Angels in the office. Klein even almost fired two of the most trusted aides in the Beatles organization, Mal Evans and Neil Aspinall, both of whom had been with the band since the days at the Cavern Club. Mal and Neil were close personal friends of the Beatles, and the band had to step in and tell Klein that firing Evans and Aspinall was out of line, and Klein relented. The biggest point of contention between the members of the band was the recording contract that Klein was renegotiating for them, which Klein used to not only take way too much money from the Beatles' success for himself, but also solidify in legal terms his control over the Beatles' empire. McCartney never signed it, but it didn't matter, because Alan Klein had all the support he needed from Apple's boards and John, George, and Ringo. In 1969, Alan Klein was arguably the darkest cloud over the Beatles. And it wouldn't be long before all four Beatles deeply regretted their involvement with Mr. Klein. In March of 1969, Paul McCartney married Linda Eastman in a ceremony that no other Beatle attended, signifying how low morale was in the band at this point, although George and Ringo did make it to the reception. Linda was much more tolerated than Yoko. She was far more diplomatic, like Paul. And after seeing how much George, Ringo, and the staff despised Yoko Ono's constant presence around the band, Linda made an effort not to be present all the time. And unlike Yoko, who was often very vocal, uh, when there was an argument or business matter, Linda would often leave the room. John and Yoko Ono, in a bit of competition against Paul and Linda, felt that they should get married too. In that same March, they decided to get married in France. There was some passport problems, so they had to abandon the idea of getting married in France, and they decided to get married on a cruise ship because uh, the captain of a ship always has the power to marry people. This fell through, so they decided to try to get married in Amsterdam. Now, Apple Corps employee Peter Brown advised them that Amsterdam required them to wait a few weeks uh, due to the marital laws in the Netherlands. So it was finally settled that Gibraltar which was the place that they could quickly tie the knot. John and Yoko traveled to Gibraltar, which is part of the UK in the southern tip of Spain, where they married in March of 1969. After their marriage, John and Yoko decided to do a bit of social activism and use their high-profile marriage to protest the Vietnam War and promote peace. After they wed, they traveled to Amsterdam and checked into the Hilton Hotel and began their famous week-long bed-in for peace. Essentially, they opened their hotel room to journalists where they would be found in bed and they talked to anyone who would listen in the press about the need for peace. The press didn't really know how to react to this, but they were, of course, intrigued at what might happen in the bed with John and Yoko. They found a very skinny John Lennon with a huge beard. I mean, John had always played around with facial hair, but this was a whole new level. Lennon was also far more outspoken about politics than he or any of the Beatles had ever been before. Lennon, for some time now, had been like the weird Beatle, which a lot of people in the press blamed on Yoko, but it was sort of confined to avant-garde art, uh, not really social activism. Lennon explained his motivation behind the bed-in for peace, saying, quote, 
Marching was fine and dandy for the 30s. Today you need different methods. It's sell, sell, sell. If you want to sell peace, you've got to sell it like soap. The media have war on every day, not only in the news, but in the old John Wayne movies, and every damn movie you see. War, war, war. Kill, kill, kill. We said let's get some peace, peace, peace on the headlines just for a change. For reasons known only to themselves, people do print what I say, and I'm saying peace, unquote. After the Amsterdam bed-in, Yoko and John traveled to Montreal to repeat the experiment, and also wanted to send every world leader, including Nixon and Brezhnev, an acorn in hopes that they'd bury it in the name of peace. John Lennon decided to describe his entire trip, the marriage, the bed-ins, in a song entitled The Ballad of John and Yoko. When he returned to London in April of 1969, he intended to record and release it as soon as possible. Ringo Starr was becoming more and more uh, of a sought-after movie star, so he was off shooting a film. George Harrison was on holiday with his wife, but Paul was available. He was the only Beatle available, and the two met at Paul's to discuss the song, before deciding to just go to Abbey Road and record it that afternoon. This was unusual. It was just Paul and John in the studio, no other bandmates or wives, and they had a blast. The main backing track consists of Paul on the drums and John singing with an acoustic guitar. At one point, John jokingly says to Paul, quote, go a bit faster, Ringo, unquote, and Paul replied, quote, okay, George, unquote. Despite the business concerns and everything, this was really a special moment for John and Paul because they checked everything at the door and just collaborated like they used to, working, laughing, experimenting. This is arguably the last true Lennon-McCartney song in the Beatles catalog. Even the staff remarked how they hadn't seen John in as good of a mood as they had at that session for years. A few days later, George Harrison, who was dealing with some legal troubles from a recent drug bust at his house in Escher, worked out one of his songs, Old Brown Shoe, to serve as a B-side for the ballad of John and Yoko. Now, it's pretty weird because somehow there was all these business concerns and these, this, these horrible fights and these, you know, wars, people picking sides, Eastman versus Klein, but yet, like, in the spring of 1969, the Beatles are still making music together really just days after the contentious Get Back sessions in January of 1969. I mean, those sessions were marred by fighting. George Harrison quit temporarily. John and Yoko were struggling with heroin. Uh, The band was back in the studio like days after those sessions. Weirdly enough, they sort of forgot about all the business disputes when they got into the studio. Uh, Not that it was completely smooth sailing, but their arguments were usually about the music and the direction of whatever they were doing at the sessions. They usually saved their arguments about business for their meetings at Savile Row. In the winter and spring of 1969, the Beatles are kind of always in the studio, but never with any grand vision. They declined to use Glyn John's version of the Get Back album that they recorded, and they pretty much decided to throw the whole project away. They were still recording and releasing singles, Uh, They even cut a good take of I Want You, She's So Heavy, which is a really dark, hard rock song uh, to me that proves just how good of a rock and roll band the Beatles are. Uh, It would end up on the White Album, and Billy Preston's actually plays the uh, keyboard in that song. They recorded that in February, and in the spring they released songs like Get Back, Don't Let Me Down, and The Ballad of John and Yoko and Old Brown Shoe. By the middle of spring, it became clear that they needed direction and they needed something to follow up their most recent album, which was the White Album, the last one that they released. So they decided that they should go back 
to the studio and just decide to record an album. And, you know, the White Album was recorded pretty differently and the Get Back sessions were recorded pretty differently. This time, they really wanted to make a good album, so the Beatles decided that they would try to go back to basics and record an album like they used to. John, Paul, George, and Ringo didn't go into Abbey Road thinking that this was going to be the last time they'd record together, but they all decided that it did need to be a special album. I mean, the last few albums were recorded under radically different conditions, uh, and they were fighting a lot, and they really decided that they needed to get together, stop fighting so much, uh, stop being in in each other's ways, and record an album like they used to. Most importantly, this meant that they had to get George Martin back in the control room to produce the record. Since George Martin had faded into the background, uh, the recording process had become fragmented and aimless, uh, not to mention George Martin was instrumental in making uh, so many Beatles records, and he was an absolute hero on Sgt. Pepper. However, he was disrespected so badly in the White Album that he left the sessions, and he played a pretty minimal role on the Get Back sessions and all the recordings in early 1969. He really thought that his career producing the Beatles was over. George Martin said about this period, quote, Let It Be was such an unhappy record. Even though there were some great songs on it, I really believed that was the end of the Beatles, and I assumed that I would never work with them again. I thought, what a shame to end like this. So I was quite surprised when Paul rang me up and said, we're going to make another record. Would you like to produce it? My immediate answer was, only if you let me produce it the way we used to. He said, we will, we want to. I said, John included? Yes, honestly. So I said, well, if you really want to, let's do it. Let's get together again, unquote. They also decided to record at EMI Studios on Abbey Road. Instead of the new Apple Studio at Savile Row, Jeff Emmerich, the main Beatles engineer, was also invited back for this record after having quit during the White Album sessions. The mood was greatly improved, too. Like I said, they didn't know it was going to be their last album, but there definitely was a feeling that maybe it could or should be. They were much more civil, easygoing, and they worked far more like a team under George Martin again. Overall, John was less aggressive, Paul was less bossy, George was less resentful and didn't complain as much, and Ringo was more involved and fun-loving again. However, as much as they wanted it to be like the old days, it simply wasn't. First of all, they were at the peak of their popularity, and there was a lot less innocence and a lot more business. I mean, they also were the Beatles, so they weren't fully under the control of George Martin. They could really do whatever they want, and a lot of the time they were aimlessly jamming for hours and hours, doing these long, meandering, psychedelic jams in the studio, which was not fun for the staff. They were also married. They had families of some kind. There were, like new people in the studio from time to time. Yoko was always there, which was a definite point of tension still. Though they began to get used to Yoko, and after a while they didn't really acknowledge her or really pay much attention to her. While the morale was better and the teamwork was improved, they were still, you know, picking their battles. And a lot of times they just stayed out of each other's way as opposed to the way they used to cheer each other on while someone was doing a vocal or something. They would kind of leave the room and and let people do their own thing. 
technically EMI had just acquired a new 8-track recorder. So there was a big difference sonically. Uh, the 4-track uh, was sort of the way that you recorded a Beatles album up until this point. And this 8-track recorder gave the Beatles a much different texture musically. There was also a big difference in personalities. George Harrison was much more confident than he'd ever been. Since re rediscovering his love for guitar in 1968, he was playing the best guitar of his career so far, and his experience producing for Apple and the sheer amount of songs that he had accumulated in the past two years all of a sudden made him the closest he'd ever been to a creative equal with Lennon and McCartney, and he knew it. So this is kind of the scene before the recording of Abbey Road. The band decided to start working on their next project starting July 1st, 1969, and work through the rest of the summer. However, just days before the session were set to begin, the band got word that John wouldn't be there for some time. He had been in a bad car accident in the north of England while on holiday with Yoko, Julian, and Kyoko, and was currently okay but hospitalized. So on July 1st, George, Ringo, and Paul got to work without John Lennon and Yoko Ono. <laughs> Paul, George, and Ringo got started with songs like Her Majesty, Maxwell's Silver Hammer, and Golden Slumber's Carry That Weight, which were two different songs that Paul decided to join together. The sessions were really relaxed and easygoing. Ringo, Paul, and George worked really well together, and John and Yoko's absence definitely put everyone at ease. There was a good amount of tension during the recording of Paul's Maxwell's Silver Hammer, though. Paul wrote the song in India. Ringo and George felt like they were playing Maxwell to death. In typical McCartney fashion, it was just take after take after take, even if they felt like the previous take was good enough. At one point, George and Paul started yelling at each other about it, but the argument quickly subsided and they just got to work. Ringo said of the recording of the song, quote, The worst session ever was Maxwell's Silver Hammer. It was the worst track we ever had to record. It went on for fucking weeks. I thought I was mad, unquote. Paul also remembers the recording of Maxwell saying, quote, The only arguments were about things like me spending three days on Maxwell's Silver Hammer. I remember George saying, You've taken three days. It's only a song. Yeah, but I want to get it right. I've got some thoughts on this one, unquote. None of the other Beatles actually liked the song. In fact, they all kind of made fun of it and called it Paul's granny music, which was a term that they had developed to kind of describe those that style of song. It kind of fits, actually. But the song ended up being pretty interesting. They actually had Mal Evans hitting an anvil on the track, and Paul plays a pretty interesting moog part on it. The moog is an instrument that was kind of like a synthesizer that Paul and George got really into during this period, and it's all over Abbey Road. John and Yoko actually returned during the recording of Maxwell's Silver Hammer, but John hated the song and refused to play on it. John's return was greeted with a bit of nervousness. Despite the long sessions on Maxwell, the sessions were really fun and easygoing, and there was a worry John and Yoko's presence might change that. When the couple got to the studio, they barely said hello before a few delivery men barged into Abbey Road with a huge box labeled Harrods. Inside the box was a bed to be set up in the studio for Yoko Ono, who had suffered the worst injuries from the accident and was still recovering. John wanted her to rest by his side while they were recording. John asked the staff to put a microphone above the bed so that Yoko could still give input from the bed. Everyone was speechless about this. 
Jeff Emmerich said of the incident, quote, I'd spent nearly seven years of my life in recording studios, and I thought I'd seen it all. But this took the cake. Staff members George Martin, John Curlander, Phil and I exchanged wary looks. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see that Paul, Ringo, and George Harrison were as gobsmacked as we were, unquote. I think everyone quickly accepted that this was sort of the way it was going to have to be, just another day at the office. After a few days settling in, they began working on a John song uh, that he had been working on called Come Together, inspired by Chuck Berry's You Can't Catch Me and Timothy Leary's California gubernatorial campaign against Ronald Reagan. Timothy Leary was like a LSD activist. It was originally pretty fast, upbeat, but Paul and John decided that they wanted to make it a bit swampier, they said. So they slowed it down, make sure the drums and guitar were really laid back. And Paul added that epic bass line in the song. John is saying shoot me and clapping into the microphone at the beginning of the song, which is obviously pretty eerie. Paul worked out a great keyboard part for the song, which John sort of sneakily observed over, his, over Paul's shoulder, and then he adapted his own version of it. When it came time to do the backing vocal, John informed Paul that he wanted to do the harmony himself, which really disappointed Paul, who kind of wanted it to be a Lennon-McCartney song, and he wanted to do the backing vocal like they used to. Paul had been working on a 1950s-style rock and roll song called Oh Darling, the song is widely interpreted as Paul pleading with John Lennon to reconcile with him. The trickiest part of the song is the vocal. Um, Paul had a really hard time getting this vocal part right. Uh, for a few sessions, he would try the vocal only one time, one time in the morning, because he wanted his voice to sound raw, as if he'd been performing all week, so he would do it without warming up. John was a huge fan of 50s rock, and he liked the song a lot, but he wished that he had been the one to do the vocal. He said, quote, Oh, darling, was a great one of Paul's that he didn't sing too well. I always thought I could have done it better. It's more my style than his. He wrote it, so what the hell, he's going to sing it. If he had any, had any sense, he would have let me sing it, unquote. This is kind of the way it was back then. There was a little bit of an eye for an eye and a little bit of like weird distance. They couldn't just say to each other, can I sing on that? Or Paul couldn't say, well, why don't I do the harmony? It was this weird like distance between the four Beatles, something had been broken. One of the strongest songs on the album is Lennon's song called Because. One day, John was sitting around listening to Yoko playing Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata when he had a sudden idea. He quickly asked Yoko to play the chords of that song backwards, and he wrote a song loosely based off of this backwards chord progression. Lennon said about the song, quote, Yoko was playing Moonlight Sonata on the piano. She was classically trained. I said, can you play those chords backward? And wrote because around them. The lyrics speak for themselves. They're clear. No bullshit. No imagery. No obscure references. Unquote. The most standout portion of the song is the harmonies, which almost certainly is the best Beatles vocal performance in their catalog. George Martin gathered them around the piano, like the old days, and played them through their parts, really showing how important George was to their sound. They then overdubbed more harmonies over the harmonies that they just recorded to create a really lush-sounding song. George Harrison plays the Moog solo in the middle of the song, and George Martin joins the band on harpsichord. There are a lot of amazing songs on Abbey Road, but Because is definitely near the top of the list. I mean, it's just 
lyrically amazing, musically amazing, and it's like one of the kind of peak Beatles teamwork moments uh, during the recording of Abbey Road. Lennon and McCartney were not the only Beatles who had their moments in the sun on this album. Ringo brought his second ever composition to the sessions, this one called Octopus's Garden. Ringo actually wrote Octopus's Garden in Sardinia, Italy, during the two weeks that he quit the Beatles in the summer of 1968. Ringo told the story, quote, I wrote Octopus's Garden in Sardinia. Peter Sellers had lent us his yacht, and we went out for the day. I stayed out on the deck with the captain, and we talked about octopuses. He told me that they hang out in their caves and they go around the seabed finding shiny stones and tin cans and bottles to put in front of their cave, like a garden. I thought this was fabulous because, at the time, I just wanted to be under the sea too. A couple of tokes later, with the guitar, and we had Octopus's Garden, unquote. Ringo brought three songs to the sessions, but the Beatles thought this was the best, and with help primarily from George Harrison, Ringo arranged it into kind of a psychedelic country song for kids. George plays some great lead guitar, and John adds a nice picked rhythm part. Paul adds bass and some piano. And Ringo was pretty confident with the song, actually, and he was, like, acting as the producer when they were recording, telling people what to do, asking the staff to make a bunch of underwater sound effects. It's actually a great song. George Harrison said of the song, quote, For me, you know, I find very deep meaning in the lyrics, which Ringo probably doesn't see. But all the things like resting our head on the seabed and we'll be warm beneath the storm, which is really great, you know, because it's like this level is the storm. And if you get sort of deep in your consciousness, it's very peaceful. So Ringo's writing cosmic without noticing, unquote. The final product is pretty undeniably great, fun, happy song that everyone was happy to put on the album. George Harrison took a long time to develop as a songwriter. He started back in 1963 with Don't Bother Me and contributed one or two songs to each Beatles album, like If I Needed Someone or Taxman. Then he dropped pop and became obsessed with Indian music, but around the time of the White Album, he decided to pick up his guitar once again. And then he started writing a ton of songs and became a hugely talented songwriter. He even got better when he started writing songs for other people at Apple, like Jackie Lomax, Joe Cocker, Badfinger, etc. By the making of Abbey Road, George Harrison had a huge backlog of songs, and he knew that he could never record them all with the Beatles. The most songs he ever got on an uh, album was the White Album, where he got four tracks out of almost like 30 songs on an album. It was just impossible to contribute more songs with Lennon and McCartney, and honestly, until Abbey Road, George had never really wowed anyone in the Beatles with one of his songs. I mean, Gently Weeps was good, but, you know, George never really had a song that could live up to Strawberry Fields, Hey Jude, or I Am the Walrus. He brought, you know, For You Blue and I Me Mine and stuff, and they're good songs, but they're just not on the level. Abbey Road would be the album that changed that. And the two songs George brought to the album are arguably the best on the album, and they demanded the respect of John and Paul. The first song they worked out was Here Comes the Sun. 
George began writing the song while he was hanging out with Eric Clapton in his garden in the spring of 1969. George was fed up with all the fighting and the war over Alan Klein, so he decided to go to Eric's house instead of uh, to the meetings that had been scheduled that day at Savile Row. George remembered the day, saying, quote, Here Comes the Sun was written at the time when Apple was getting like school, where we had to go and be businessmen, sign this and sign that. Anyway, it seems as if winter in England goes on forever. By the time the spring comes, you really deserve it. So one day I decided I was going to sag off Apple, and I went over to Eric Clapton's house. The relief of not having to go and see all those dopey accountants is wonderful, and I walked around the garden with one of Eric's acoustic guitars and wrote, Here Comes the Sun, unquote. Eric Clapton, who was the only person there to witness this moment, said of Here Comes the Sun, quote, It was one of those beautiful spring mornings. I think it was April. We were just walking around the garden with our guitars, and I don't do that, you know, this is what George brought to the situation. He was just a magical guy, and he would show up with his guitar, get out of the car with the guitar, and show up and start playing. And we walked around the garden, we sat down, looking out over the garden, and the sun was shining, and it was a beautiful morning, and he started to sing, Here Comes the Sun, and I just watched this thing come to life, unquote. The Beatles began recording Here Comes the Sun in early July, just George, Paul, and Ringo. John was still recovering, but during this period, John would usually make an effort not to be in the studio when the band was recording a George song. During this period, John really liked working on his songs, and he would tolerate working on some of Paul's, but he was too bored when they were cutting a George track. And, you know, he might have added an overdub or something, but didn't really care enough to be there for the whole session. The song has a really complicated drum part. The timing is, like, really strange. Some parts are in 4-4, which was normal. Other parts are in 11-8 or 7-8 time, so Ringo was doing some serious math to get his drum fills right. Paul adds uh, the bass and some backing vocals. To touch it up, George put on a Moog part, and there are some orchestral pieces arranged by George Martin. Harrison actually recorded a few guitar solos for the song, one of which you can hear on YouTube, but for some reason, I don't know why he didn't include it in the final cut. The Beatles didn't release Here Comes the Sun as a single, but if they did, it surely would have been a huge hit. I mean, already I think it's the most streamed Beatles song on Spotify with like half a billion streams, and I'm pretty sure every like English speaker on earth knows the lyrics to the song. George's biggest accomplishment on the album, though, was the second song, Something. George originally wrote the song while Paul and John were off in separate recording studios during the White Album. George sat behind the piano and started writing the song. But it came to him far too easily. George usually really labored to bring songs in existence, but this one just came, so he assumed it was already a song. In fact, he actually lifted the opening lyric, Something in the Way She Moves, from Apple Signy James Taylor's song of the same title. George kept the song, which was lyrically probably about Patty Boyd, who said about something, quote, He told me in a matter-of-fact way that he had written it for me. I thought it was beautiful, unquote. George later caused some confusion by denying that the song was about Patty, saying it was about his spiritual journey, but he had a habit of muddying the waters about this type of stuff in later interviews. The band worked uh, a bit on something in the Get Back sessions, and then later in the spring of 1969, but it was never seriously recorded because George was still sort of working out the arrangement and the lyrics for the tune. Eventually, George decided to give the song to Apple artist Joe Cocker, who needed a song for his upcoming solo album. But for some reason, maybe because he felt the song was pretty strong and everyone really liked it, George decided to bring the song 
to the sessions for Abbey Road in July of 1969. George, Ringo, and Paul worked on the song. George Martin arranged a classical orchestral part to go along with it, and George Harrison meticulously worked on his guitar solo, and he nailed it. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful guitar solos ever. Sounds like he's playing it from the inside of a lava lamp or something. George and Paul had a bit of an argument about the bass part. Uh, George wanted to be less busy, but I think Paul did an outstanding job. The final product is a beautiful, melodic, psychedelic love song. I mean, I mean, everyone has heard this anecdote, but it's interesting. Frank Sinatra said it was like the greatest love song ever written and his favorite Lennon-McCartney song, uh, accidentally calling it a Lennon-McCartney instead of a Harrison song. But it really, it wowed everyone. Uh, Jeff Emmerich remembered, quote, George had a smugness on his face when he came in with this one, and rightly so. He knew it was beautiful and brilliant. And for the first time, John and Paul knew that George had risen to their level, unquote. Even John Lennon was blown away. He later said when discussing what should be the single for the album, quote, I think something is about the best track on the album, actually, unquote. When it came time to release the single, everyone agreed that it should be something. They put it on a double A-side single with Come Together. I mean, this was a big deal. George had the Inner Light and Old Brown Shoe both as B-sides to a single, um, never the A-side, which was sort of an even bigger deal when something went to number one in America, making it George Harrison's first number one single. The success of something was definitely a preview to what was going to be coming in George Harrison's solo career. The second side of Abbey Road is mostly dedicated to a pretty ambitious project for the Beatles, which is the Abbey Road medley. The Beatles wanted to do something experimental and kind of different, like a mini rock opera. And since this was truly a rock and roll album with no crazy effects or anything, the medley was kind of the way to do it. They also had a bunch of pieces of songs that they'd been working on for years, and they were still kind of spending hours in the studio doing these long, aimless jams, so the medley seemed kind of like a good way to focus them and get rid of all these song pieces. In truth, the medley was mainly Paul's idea with encouragement from George Martin. John was pretty against it at first, though. When they asked him if he wanted to add any pieces of songs to the contribute, he quickly got into the spirit of things. There's a bit of disagreement over what the first song of the medley is. Most people accept it to be You Never Give Me Your Money. This was Paul's song, which he wrote vaguely about the financial problems the band was having uh, with Alan Klein and Apple. And towards the middle, it kind of becomes a nostalgic look back at the spirit of the Beatles. The song goes through a few styles of its own, kind of like a mini medley of its own. Uh, George Harrison adds a pretty lengthy guitar solo and that arpeggiated chord riff that is kind of a theme uh, throughout Abbey Road, not unlike what is played under the guitar solo in Cream's Badge. You Never Give Me Your Money fades into John's Sun King. The song is pretty psychedelic, and George and John do some great guitar weaving on it, and the half Spanish slash Italian lyrics on it were like really fun for the band to record. They couldn't stop laughing. Sun King goes into two more of John's songs, Mean Mr. Mustard and Polythene Pam. The two were actually completely different songs, but now they're kind of considered sister songs because they were placed together within the medley and because John changed the lyrics in Mean Mr. Mustard from his sister Shirley to his sister Pam, making it seem like there's a common story there. 
Polythene Pam is a real rocker, and Ringo plays a really strange drum beat, which John laughed about and said it sounded like the Dave Clark Five. George also plays a nice solo on the end of it. Polythene Pam fades perfectly into She Came In Through the Bathroom Window, a Paul song about getting robbed uh, by a fan, a Beatles fan. The last section of the medley is what I consider to be the finest of the entire thing, Golden Slumbers, and to carry that weight into the end. Paul uh, changed the words to an old lullaby, Golden Slumbers, and then added a really intense vocal part uh, with George Harrison on bass and Ringo Starr on drums. It's one of my favorite songs. It's so good. Carry That Weight is another song that was kind of about the general vibe and financial situation the band was going through. Paul describes the song, quote, I'm generally quite upbeat, but at certain times things get to me so much and I just can't be upbeat anymore. And that was one of the times. We were taking so much acid and doing so much drugs and all this Klein shit was going on and getting crazier and crazier and crazier. Carry that weight a long time, like forever. That's what I meant, unquote. Carry that weight is kind of unusual because I always heard Ringo singing. And I never, I never knew if that was just me or that's just it sounded like um, when all the Beatles were singing together. But I later found out that Paul and Ringo are actually the only singers on it. They're they're singing the chorus the whole way through. I'm pretty sure it's the only Beatles song where Paul and Ringo sing lead together. George's arpeggiated guitar riff comes back as the song fades into the end. The end is a real rock and roll song written by Paul. Not a lot of lyrics, but the ones that are there include one of the best, most classic Beatles lyrics. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. It's probably one of the most unusual Beatles songs because every single Beatle plays a solo on it. Uh, The band even got Ringo to play a drum solo, which he hated doing, and it would end up being the only drum solo ever featured on a Beatles record. Ringo was pretty nervous while cutting the drum solo, so the band did a lot of takes, and every solo was pretty different. The final solo chosen was fantastic and apparently much shorter than all the solos that Ringo actually recorded. John wanted to play the guitar solo on the end, and he rarely played lead. Uh, George really wasn't letting anyone play lead on Abbey Road because he was so confident during this period, so he was a bit territorial. Eventually, it was decided that the three Beatles would play dueling guitar solos. This was kind of a thing back then anyways. Hard rock bands were starting to have two lead guitar players who would jam together, so it was decided that each Beatle would get two bars to play a solo, and they would just keep going back and forth. There's actually no real tension over this idea. It was just pure fun, and everyone quickly got into the spirit of things. The obvious Beatle way to do it was to overdub the solos, but for some reason they decide to improvise them live in the studio. Jeff Emmerich recalls this moment saying, quote, John, Paul, and George looked like they had gone back in time, like they were kids again, playing together for the sheer enjoyment of it. More than anything, they reminded me of gunslingers with their guitars strapped on, looks of steely-eyed resolve, determined to outdo one, one another. Yet there was no animosity, no tension at all. You could tell that they were simply having fun, unquote. John, Paul, and George went into the studio, no wives, no staff, and they just started to play. The first solo was taken by Paul, who was playing maybe a Les Paul or an Epiphone, followed by George, who took the second slot. He was playing mainly strats at this p- uh, period, but he might have played this solo with his red Les Paul. And the third slot went to John, who was playing a fuzzed-out solo with that tan Epiphone Casino. They each played three times, and they had a blast with it. 
The band played the sequence in one take, and every lick perfectly accents the other. To end the Abbey Road medley, I think phenomenally, perfectly. Abbey Road actually ends with a fragment of Her Majesty, which was put at the end of the tapes and left on just kind of for fun, typical Beatles fashion. When the band finished up recording at the end of the summer, they had to decide what to name the album. There were a few names that had potential. Four in the Bar was a potential name. Uh, All Good Children Go to Heaven was almost their pick. The band, though, had pretty much decided that they wanted to call the album Everest. Paul wanted to fly to Nepal and do a photo shoot in front of Mount Everest, but the rest of the band didn't really see the point in flying halfway around the world to do a photo shoot. Paul was pretty discouraged, and when he asked the other guys, quote, well, if we aren't going to call it Everest and pose in, uh, for the cover in Tibet, what are we going to do, unquote? And literally, Ringo responded as a joke by saying, quote, fuck it, let's just step outside and call it Abbey Road, unquote. And that's literally what they did. They all got dressed up on a beautiful day and walked across the zebra crosswalk on Abbey Road, John taking the lead with a huge beard and a white suit, followed by Ringo dressed head-to-toe in black, followed by Paul who walked across barefoot with a ciggy in his hand, which for some reason fueled this crazy conspiracy theory that Paul had died in 1966 and been replaced by a lookalike, and George was last in line with really long, hippie hair dressed head-to-toe in matching denim. This could be the most iconic album cover ever. I love it so much. Uh, Abbey Road was just a huge triumph. Of course, it was the biggest album of 1969. The Beatles once again shocked everyone, shook the music industry, uh, not by going crazy like they did on Sgt. Pepper, not by doing a huge mix of styles and sounds like they did on the White Album, but by showing everyone how good they were as a rock and roll band, as a bass, guitar, drum, vocal, keyboard uh, unit, they sounded different due to the new equipment in Abbey Road and uh, the stylistically it was different. Of course, there was tension and fighting, but for Abbey Road, they really put down the boxing gloves and they made an effort uh, to make an album that the whole band could be proud of. The whole time they were recording There wasn't like any talk that it was going to be their last album. However, everyone in the band seems to think that there was a definite feeling of a chapter closing while recording it. But that may only be true in retrospect. I don't believe, I think the evidence points to the band really not thinking that Abbey Road was going to be their last album. At the time, the band was pretty sure they were going to keep the Beatles going. They had their tensions, but they had worked through them before, and this was pretty much expected, that they'd, you know, make another album, maybe even return to the stage. But in September of 1969, just before Abbey Road was set to be released, the band was at a meeting negotiating a new recording contract. Paul was actually talking to the guys about going back to the live show. He felt playing live was the best move for the band. That's when John shocked everyone by saying, quote, I wasn't going to tell you until after we signed the deal, but I'm leaving the group, unquote. Everyone was shocked, and Paul asked John what he meant. John answered by saying, quote, I mean the group is over. I'm leaving. I want a divorce, unquote. Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. Hate to leave it on that cliffhanger, but I'm going to talk about all the details about their breakup. I'm going to bust the myths, uh, tell you some things hopefully you didn't know, all next week. Um, 
I'm going to talk about the early days of the Beatles going solo. Uh, So don't forget to subscribe to Rock Bands Podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Bands Podcast and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends until next week. All right, listen to Abbey Road, listen to the Beatles. Rock on. Thank you.